So I was wondering what to do for episode number 200 here. I thought to do a sort of greatest hits of touching on all the things here and there and bringing them all together that I've mentioned over the past uh, year or so. But then I realized there's actually something uh, that I put together back in 2013 or so uh, that has all of that stuff right there. Um, as I go through uh, reading this and commenting on it, you'll see it. Uh, nearly all of the concerns that I mentioned in the past year or so about writing and creativity, about fame and success, and the difference between what creative people are supposed to be like and how they live their lives and what it is actually like, the idea of uh, how does Homer take out the garbage, all of that. Um, and the most important one, at least for me, uh, the idea that the life of the artist, even if it appears to be one of isolation from the rest of the world, it is actually, at least for me, about having sympathy and empathy and actually a very similar kind of life to those people who work nine to five jobs every day. Uh, I've mentioned the story before of as far back as high school where a friend and I were talking about uh, some book and uh, someone else approached us in uh, one of our other friends and they said, um, I'm not on the same level as you two. And right away, even then, my response was, without even thinking about it, there there isn't a level. Um, or if there is, I mean, if there is a difference between someone who wants to read Shakespeare or Whitman and someone who doesn't, um, the, uh, the solution there isn't that you are suddenly a better person than them or uh, you, you really don't have a right to be a snob. Um, and really in what I'm about to say, I bring that out even more clearly than I ever have before, uh, that the idea of success or failure that I have felt uh, really isn't that much different than what other people in other fields or other pursuits or other jobs or other aspirations have felt. And it begins with a memory of baseball. When Derek Jeter retired from baseball in the fall of 2014, those who followed his last season heard the unsurprising story that he had wanted to be shortstop for the New York Yankees since he was a little boy. And as I watched his last home game at Yankee Stadium, and as I watched how his last hit in the bottom of the ninth inning won the game, the smile and excitement on his 40-year-old face was still, beautifully, that of a child. It was the kind of perfect public moment that many of us fantasize about for ourselves. And just watching it made me feel like a child again, too. Yet almost immediately upon hearing of his boyhood wish, I realized something. As a kid, I had also wanted to play shortstop for the New York Yankees. And with Jeter only five years older than me, it's possible that somewhere in the early 1990s, with him in school, in high school, and me still in grade school, and both of us playing baseball in the summer, 
hundreds of miles apart. It's possible that we both had the same wish, the same wish to play in the majors that millions have had, but that very few have actually achieved. And since writing that, I actually came across that exact same observation from the other side, and I wanted to add that in here. Uh, in the early 90s or so, uh, Bruce Springsteen was asked to play with the Rolling Stones at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony. And this is what Bruce Springsteen said in his memoirs about uh, that invitation. And this is pretty incredible. Uh, he says, look at it like this. In 1964, millions of kids saw the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and decided, that looks like fun. Some of them went out and bought instruments. Some of them learned to play a little. Some got good enough to maybe join a local band. Some might have even made a demo tape. Some might have lucked out and gotten a record deal of some sort. A few of those might have sold some records and done some touring. A few of those might have had a small hit, a short career in music, and managed to eke out a modest living. A very few of those might have managed to make a life as a musician, and a very, very few might have had some continuing success that brought them fame, fortune, and deep gratitude. But tonight, one, just one of those, ended up standing between Mick Jagger and George Harrison, a stone and a beetle. I did not fool myself about what the odds were back in 1964 that that one would have been the acne-faced 15-year-old kid with a cheap Kent guitar from Freehold, New Jersey. But it was. It was him. And that at least says something very nice about Bruce Springsteen, that he uh, that he does have some perspective on uh, the kind of success that he's been able to achieve. I thought that was nice that that's basically the same thought had occurred to him on the other side of the uh, on the other side of all of this. So, and it continues. I remember attending a party years ago in my hometown of someone who just graduated high school and was wasting no time driving out to Hollywood to quote make it. But even if this even if this person has made it, it's still an unavoidable fact that nearly everyone who sets out for Hollywood never does. And that's striking. I'd even say breathtaking. The weight of so many thousands of ambitions which every year are snuffed out. And closest to home, this situation is true for writers, since just as many have had the dream of being a best-selling author, or just a moderately successful published author, including me. By and large, though, very few people ever achieve either. I certainly have not. Yet, in the middle of whining to myself about my own lack of success, it was remarkable to suddenly realize that, by and large, this is nearly everyone's lot and that in the midst of such self-pity, a large amount of actual life, of actual living, had been missed. I don't know why it was, at the age of 13, that I both started writing a ton of early stories, 
and at the same time wanted to see them published. While I no doubt enjoyed discovering how remarkable those private and isolated hours of writing could be, I also wasn't interested in the result of that seclusion being my own secret. At an age where I felt lonely enough already, writing was synonymous with sharing it, and for better or worse, it always has been. But it wasn't long until my propensity to write was also equated with rebellion of some kind. My eighth grade teacher made a remark about how she couldn't go through another ten-page story of mine, and one of the mothers of a smarter girl in my class refused to believe I had written any of the stories at all. Feelings of both rejection and superiority are toxic to an adolescent, and versions of them followed me all through high school. One of the cooler, hippieish girls once told me uh, that what I had written would be good, but only if you could actually write. This, while a teacher, seeing me reading James Joyce, said that he was, quote, very intellectual. I dismissed both remarks, the first because I was certain that I could write, the second because already I refused to believe that literature or art was something for me to hold over anyone's head so I could feel smarter than them or for others to feel intimidated by. It's for this reason that I despise so much that makes up cultural life, since a great deal of it really is motivated by the arrogance or fear or of self-conscious people just like me. But I would be lying if I said I wasn't even minimally it wasn't even minimally empowering to be dismissed or to be held aloft. For all of my desire to use writing as a way of not feeling so alone, a small part of me no doubt enjoyed that it continued to keep me in that very state. Just as I persisted in considering literature a real lifeline, deep down I also held that an interest in it did somehow make me better than others. Add to this the usual feelings of those in their teens through mid-twenties of being underestimated and misunderstood and beset on all sides, and it was hard not to see the world of literature both as a genuine interest but also as something to just hide behind. The only thing to vindicate my efforts then was to achieve the kind of success or just notoriety seen in movies or on TV. And the equivalent for me was the fame of those writers I started to read about. So, in the biographies of people like James Joyce and T.S. Eliot, I found models of youth and early adulthood which I felt corresponded in small ways to my own. And when they were initially condemned or dismissed, but eventually gained a reputation, in my own mind, I took their trials as being similar to my own, too. At the time, though, I also used the merely local renown of adults in their 50s, people with badly designed chapbooks or adults in their 50s in crappy bands, as examples of what I would never become. One image that's never left me is of a rotund guy in a tie-dyed shirt and frayed jeans, sweat pouring from his graying hair into the eyes behind his John Lennon glasses, fumbling poorly with a bass guitar and playing uh, one night at a friend's house. 
Back then I imagined a kind of desperation in such people, who in the end were just so-so musicians or so-so poets, known only to their crowd of friends in whatever suburb of Cleveland. Now, nearing forty myself, and in the present, being forty-two, it never occurred to me that I might, in fact, become something just like them, and even more. When I was younger and experienced the rejection or sarcasm or defensiveness from people I worked with, whether at a, part, whether at a department store or a factory, a machine shop or a fast food restaurant, an indoor sports complex or a gas station, what I didn't know was that their reaction was no different from the defensive reaction to anyone's interests when you don't happen to share them, whether for literature, music, religion, sports, politics, business, parenting, gardening, whatever. It never occurred to me that these other people might be just as passionate about something as I was about writing. It never occurred to me to ask. I never realized that, despite all our differences, we were very nearly the same just with different accents and different emphasis. Because from the very first moment I read them, these words from James Joyce also rang in my ears as the best wisdom. And these are from two letters that Joyce wrote to his brother Stanislaus uh, when Joyce was in his early 20s. He says, Don't you think there is a certain resemblance between the mystery of the Mass and what I am trying to do? I mean that I am trying to give people some kind of intellectual pleasure or spiritual enjoyment by converting the bread of everyday life into something that has a permanent artistic life of its own for their mental, moral, and spiritual uplift. And later on he says, Do you see that man who just skipped out of the way of that tram? Consider, if he had been run over, how significant every act of his would at once become. I don't mean for the police inspector, I mean for anybody who knew him, and his thoughts, for anybody that could know them. It is my idea of the significance of trivial things that I want to give the two or three unfortunate wretches who may eventually read me. And I go on to say, even before I found these words at the age of 17, I already sensed that intellectual pissing contests were a waste of time that rivalries in schools and any attempts at dogma or certainty of one-upsmanship and even fame were just bullshit. I somehow already knew that art could be a vehicle for assuaging the anxieties and the loneliness and the emptiness I felt, but could not articulate, the grave and great distances which our aspirations and interests put between ourselves and others. At one and the same moment, then, I believed other people and their everyday lives to be symphonies, but also that I deserved to not have to be around them. It's often struck me how sad it is that artists, a tribe so cripplingly self-conscious and selfish and jealous and full of themselves, are the ones to make our art. But just by thinking such a thing, I prove that I am no different. Imagining again that I am separate and estranged or original, I am just another face in the crowd. 
Over the past few years, I've recorded nearly six hours of interviews with my mother about her childhood and upbringing. At one point, I simply wanted to know what she, as an individual, had loved and was interested in. What books did she love? What music? What TV or movies? As the conversation went on, though, she hardly mentioned any of this. I kept trying to steer her back to these things, but then I realized that she was answering my question just fine. Books and TV and movies were things that had meant so much to me as a teenager, not to her. Rather, she loved gymnastics and some of the folk music of the late 1960s. But even more than this was Slovenian music and dancing and visiting with her cousins a few streets over. It's taken so long for me to see this, but I've been taught lessons like this hundreds of times for years. As a result of my lack of outward or financial success, I've been lucky enough to work and live among people who, on the surface, couldn't be more different than me. I've had to live among them and work with them and find a way of dealing with that complexity. I've had to stop myself from ever looking down on them, ever diminishing anything they do or say, just because it's nothing I would ever do or say, and just because the things I write or read are things that they would never occupy their time with either. And so it was only when I finally began to reflect on what I really meant by how, quote, unsuccessful I was, that I came to see how close I was to everyone else who also feels both unsuccessful and perhaps unfulfilled. A member of the UAW once told Studs Terkel, quote, Every time I see an automobile going down the street, I wonder whether the person driving it realizes the kind of human sacrifice that has gone into the building of that car. And more and more now, I simply sit back and wonder how much human sacrifice goes into so much of what we experience every day. From whoever builds our cars or buses, maintains our roads, cooks our lunches or dinners, or answers whatever dumb customer service questions we have on the phone. All the shitty jobs undertaken by the salt of the earth so that we might have entertainment or leisure or just have things. And this is just the pain of jobs people would rather not have. How much pain and exhaustion by those who have been chasing something they love only to see it never materialize, never succeed. Recently, I combed through an old list of literary magazines to submit short stories to, but it had been, but it had been last updated sometime around 2004, and many of the magazines simply no longer existed. Sometimes the link was broken and went nowhere, or there was just the most recent issue from five or eight years ago, or the page exclaimed in bold letters that they were now accepting submissions for their fall issue of 2010. And I think of all those closed magazines and journals, which now include mine, if anyone goes looking for uh, uh, an online magazine called Underfoot Poetry. All those attempt by so many web designers to look professional and literate, but distinctive. All those other magazines I'll never hear about that only lasted a year, or an issue, or never got off the ground at all. 
and I imagine their editors, writers like me, who one day, when out with their friends, suddenly struck up the idea to start a magazine. And wouldn't it be great? So much energy and enthusiasm, and indeed, human sacrifice, that led in the end to very little. And then I think of all the writers I've known. A handful have been published in dozens of journals and magazines, and they continue to write. Another handful continue to write, but have only found a few places to take their stories or poems. And so the question inevitably comes, was it worth it to try somehow to conjure out of ourselves a voice which connected to the writers of the past and which stood for all the voices of our own generation and worldly moment, and which would communicate effortlessly with the young and old alike well on into the future? Because none of that, at least for the moment, and at least for the crowd I used to know, seems to have happened. And it saddens me to think that in the ensuing years, amid marriages and more kids and some divorces, amid moving all over and finding better jobs and starting all over again, by and large we are mostly unread, that these life stories or a love of history and research all twisted and turned around and made into fiction or essays or poems, and meant for all the world, are still largely the private expressions of private dreams. And I can add there now uh, podcasts that maybe get a hundred uh, listens, if I'm lucky. They have dented no heart but that of the author and only a few others, and perhaps of their spouses. But something like this process is repeated everywhere. After a while, I understand that what I'm bemoaning here is that most childish of realizations, quote, how things are. Patrick Lee Fairmore, in his memoir of walking from Holland to Constantinople in the 1930s, writes at the opening of his journey about visiting a local Dutch church and then he laments his quick departure from the town, saying, quote, Except for this church, the beautiful city was to be bombed to fragments a few years later. I would have lingered had I known, end quote. And indeed, the greatest meaning comes not in what we apprehend, but in those same moments later taken for misapprehension. Throughout life, there is the narrative of what we think is happening. All the while, underneath it, is the accumulation of memory and its impact upon a future moment, which will reveal what was, quote, really happening. And I had a funny moment of this, uh, studying Torah this past week, uh, where at one point the author that I was reading said that the stories in the Torah especially in the book of Genesis, the family stories, are so elliptical and so short, and they leave out so many details, that they almost invite reinterpretation, interpretation in what is called Midrash. And, and that the famous story of Moses in Exodus, who, uh, when he asks God to, to show Moses part of himself, to asking God to show him his face. And God says, I can't show you my face, but I can show you my back. I can show you what is behind me. 
and the interpretation of that is um, uh, one of the interpretations of that, since there are millions of them, is that uh, the stories in the Torah, and I would say um, any good story at all, especially from myth and folklore, you have the one on the page, but it is only when you're looking at the back of it when it, when it is in the past and you have time to think about it. That is the only when the actual real meaning comes. And that's sort of the same idea here. Um, I would have lingered had I known in the act of studying poetry, I guess, and of going through the round of Torah readings every year is a conscious way of trying to of trying to linger and trying to know uh, in the present moment. So that. So that there is no way of knowing, even if we do linger. The knowing can only come later. The knowledge can only come when we realize that, as T.S. Eliot said, we had the experience but missed the meaning. In the case of so many writers, or of so many people, period, and all of their ambitions, the fire was lit the moment they entered into something they loved to do. And only later, after so many of us fail, or don't succeed as much as we would like, only then do we stop and wonder if it was worth it, if we would have lingered or done differently had we known the future. Or that, perhaps, our notions of success or failure are themselves faulty, and that there is an altogether different kind of fulfillment to find. And one of the sort of dis discouraging things about reading this is that I probably uh, wrote it, put it all together in 2013 or so, and that it took almost a year to whittle down to this shape, which means that I was thinking about it probably 2010 or 11, got the idea to write it around 2012, and was only able to put it into words and try to around 2013. So that nearly all of the major concerns that I've been bringing up over and over again here uh, are things that I already came to a very good and healthy conclusion about uh, almost 10 years ago, but they have just not sunk in. Otherwise, I wouldn't have kept mentioning them. Um, but to go on here. Uh, it took some time for me to find that other form of fulfillment. My own anxieties over fame and failure and success came to an unbearable point after the twelve years spent reading mostly ancient history and poetry, all for the use in my poem called To the House of the Sun. While this decade and more remains the greatest experience I've ever had, there were downsides. With nothing of any great length to publish for more than ten years, I felt isolated and even ascetic. Few people I knew cared about what I was reading or working on. I latched on to religious hermits and reclusive authors as models, and I judged those writers or musicians whose careers were continuously played out in public, all of their albums or novels or poems continuously coming out for good or ill, as something that I was very happy not to be involved in. I was seeking, I think, some illusory sense of purity from writing and reading. Since I was doing this one huge poem, and some small poems or essays or stories, all of them had my entirely non-existent reputation writing on them. 
Every statement became final or huge or definite. I thought and theorized way too much. For a while, I even found all fiction unreadable, and by the time I finished writing to the House of the Sun, I had become so dependent upon it and the books I read in order to write it that I suddenly saw no use or meaning in reading history or ancient poetry anymore since reading them wasn't, quote, going towards anything. The greatest creative experience I'd ever had had also, in the end, killed the simple joy of reading for its own sake, and I would say writing for its own sake. The present moment joy and fever of experiencing great writing, or the lives of others. And this all stemmed from my lack of outward success, from just not seeing it as worth it anymore, expending this energy I could be devoting to my wife and family and house for something that gave nothing back once it was done. But then I came across an interview with Seamus Heaney, who said that creative life in general involves a pattern, a quote, involves a pattern of getting started, keeping going, and getting started again. Some books are a matter of keeping going. Some, if you're lucky, get you started again. This acquiescence floored me. The admission that while some work may be mediocre, and while some work may be considered a failure by the wider world, such work nevertheless just keeps the artist going. Considering how many people there are who call themselves writers, and how few of them will succeed in any real way, keeping going is the best we can do. And for most of us, just on the level of daily health and equilibrium, the experience of writing and of our private life simply has to be, it has to be, vastly more important than that writing's reception or even appearance in public. Because there are so many parallels to this everywhere. A man who is laid off from his job and kills himself in shame because he can no longer provide for his family is no different from the poet who does the same. To lose one's inspiration and drive for living, or just one's livelihood, whether as a poet or a mechanic, amounts to the same thing, the same sense of failure. I think of all the entrepreneurs in the late 90s during the dot-com bust, and how many ambitions were ruined, how much money lost. Or athletes who make it to the pros but sit the bench, or who make it to the pros only to shine for a month or two, or just a summer. Or the failed construction business, the failed restaurant, car dealership, or grocery store. This kind of loss and supposed failure are everywhere. And how do we deal with this? And even more subjective and private, dozens of pages may go into the writing and revision of one poem, hours of work yielding perhaps only a hundred or more poems in a lifetime. Yet even the best case scenario says that only a few of those, not even a dozen, will really ever last. So that the substance of what most poets lived for, even if it kept them alive, the daily and weekly toil over syllables, lines, rhythms, are nevertheless largely unknown and unseen to the wider world. And further, in one of his few merely human moments, empty of bombast and judgment, the literary critic Harold Bloom said the following about writing, quote, 
You know, I've learned something over the years picking up copies of my books in second-hand bookstores and libraries, off people's shelves. I've written so much and have now looked at so many of these books that I've learned a great deal. You also learn this from reviews and things that are cited in other people's books and so on, or from what people may say about you, to you, that what you pride yourself on, the things you think are your insight and contribution, no one ever even notices them. It's as though they're just for you. Whereas what you say in passing or what you expound because you know it too well, because it really bores you, but you feel you have to get through it in order to, in order to make your grand point, that is what people pick up on. That is what they underline. That's what they quote. And that's what they attack or cite favorably. That's what they can use. What you really think you're doing may or may not be what you're doing but it certainly isn't communicated to others. And, this is me now, and it should be said, success of any kind usually comes about completely by chance and is painfully subjective. There are millions of unpublished writers whose work is just as good, if not better, than whoever it is that is now getting so much attention. Any owner of a restaurant, any writer of a novel, any entrepreneur of any kind is likely to tell you that you might have done your best, but for some reason somebody else got published, another restaurant lasted, and another business is still around while others just are not. Writers published posthumously, or writers who after a long career suddenly hit it big, suddenly they find rejected or forgotten or poorly reviewed works being, quote, reconsidered with previous editors or reviewers suddenly admitting to themselves, I would, have I would have lingered over this work and accepted it had I known. And so when John Lennon said that the Beatles were, quote, just a band that made it really big and that they weren't anybody important, we have to take him seriously. It could just as easily have been another group. And even more, if a work of art remains in the public, public's interest at all, chances are it will take on meaning which its creator never intended, perhaps could never have even imagined. Even what the artist meant will largely become irrelevant in the face of the work's separate life and afterlife, constantly evolving and changing among the public it was meant for. And perhaps that's the key. These works are eventually meant for the others, but they are probably best created as if they were meant for the artist alone. There are two artists I have thought worth writing about in this context. The first is John Kennedy Toole, an American novelist who committed suicide in 1969. He is best known today for his posthumously published novel, The Confederacy of Dunces. Toole finished the book in 1964, and the next two years were spent in a back-and-forth with an editor who saw Toole's talent and the book's qualities, but nevertheless thought it needed a great deal of work. Toole remained unconvinced, and the last three years of his life saw him descend further and further into alcohol abuse, depression, and finally paranoia, 
overwhelmed and ashamed at the future of his book, which meant the fail, the ashamed at the failure of his book, which he equated with the failure of himself. In one of the letters that he wrote to the editor, Toole responded to the suggestion that he put the novel aside and write something else, and his words are devastating to me. Quote, I don't want to throw these characters away. In other words, I'm going to work on the book again. I haven't been able to look at the manuscript since I got it back, but since something of my soul is in the thing, I can't let it rot without trying. End quote. For years after his death, Toole's mother sent the novel to seven publishers, all of whom rejected it. She finally hounded the novelist Walker Percy into reading it. Initially reluctant, he soon championed the novel, and it was finally published in 1980, and it won the 1981 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. John Kennedy Toole's is a horribly sad story, but similar ones, minus the posthumous redemption, are legion. And the literary world being what it is, there is no reason not to assume that the same thing could have happened to Percy and not to Toole. The second life that I want to mention is that of Vincent van Gogh. Even assuming that biographies of him, biographies of anyone, are limited and subjective, that of van Gogh's vast and that the, excuse me, let me start that sentence over. Even assuming that the biographies of him, the biographies of anyone, are limited and subjective, and that Van Gogh's vast trove of letters to his brother are as much a distraction as an insight, the example of his life simply destroys me. He only lived to be 37, and only really decided to be an artist around the age of 30. The work he is most famous for, the paintings he is most famous for, were only painted in the last two, maybe three years of his life, much of it after he had moved to Arles in the south of France. The thirty years preceding his taking up painting seemed to have been spent in complete frustration and loneliness, aimlessness, rootlessness, friendlessness, and with a temperament that only encouraged it all. And those seven years of painting were only more of this, more arguing constantly with himself or with others, latching on to heroes, other artists, or theories of all kinds to suddenly structure his life around, all of which were surrounded by a running commentary on his new ideas, his new methods, his new certainties, new breakthroughs, all of which were inevitably followed by others, other breakthroughs, other certainties, other methods, all of which were followed by others, by failures, by breakdowns, by endless reversals. And to the end, he was mocked by the inhabitants of whatever town he found himself in, who considered him mad. And his simple inability to deal with other people made it that much worse. Now for me, the fact that 37 years of such suffering should have been necessary or bearable all for the sake of a good summer or two in the south of France, rips me to pieces. But I realize it only does so because of the emphasis given to fame and success and prominence, and the mistaken correlation between talent and outward happiness and acceptance, a correlation which anyone alive for more than a second realizes is illusory.
yet for all that, that it continues to persist. But the happiness and fulfillment of Van Gogh or John Kennedy Toole in the moment of creation are undeniable. And the same is true for me. This while the plummet for Van Gogh or Toole and for me only comes when trying to interest anybody else in what we're doing. When the end point is assumed in being well known and compensated, that is when the dark stuff starts. But while having an audience and being published is important, just as for so many people succeeding in business or whatever else is important, on some level it simply can't be the only important thing, or even the most important thing, since so few people actually experience it. So that what fascinates me now is how people choose to live in the face of all the different versions of this reality, how Homer takes out the garbage. After a while, even the work disappears, so that as much as I love Van Gogh's paintings, I simply think about his life. Similarly, I have never once wanted to read Toole's novel. It's his life that moves me. Other people are what interest me, simply other people, simply the voices of other human beings human voices, and the life stories, old diaries and letters or interviews, a good first-person novel. I can't count how many interviews with poets and novelists and actors and directors and musicians I've listened to or read, people whose work I have no interest in watching or reading or listening to or have any respect for, but who, when they speak naturally and answer real questions, are simply lights lights in the dark. As I said, I don't know why it was at the age of 13 that I both started writing in earnest and immediately sought attention for it. But with so much out of the artist's control, out of all of our control, one thing we can at least stop and become aware of is the simple conduct of our own lives behind all of the ambitions. More and more it seems that the art and meaning that so many people seek is what's happening when they're not trying to be artists or entrepreneurs. It's what happens when they are just living. Long ago, I sought out fiction and literature and poetry that I somehow believed to be akin to religious scripture, but eventually I said something like, I read poetry the same way and for the same reasons that other people read their scriptures, and so why not just read the scriptures? And that was my way of getting away from literary novels and a lot of uh, literary mumbo-jumbo back then. But only recently, I came back to Joyce's quote about converting the bread of everyday life into something that has a permanent artistic life of its own. And I just shrugged and I said, why not just focus on everyday life? There is nothing to convert nothing to convert. And it seems to make sense, at least to me, that it might be less important what I write than what I do when I'm not writing. I found myself envious of one novelist whose dust jacket biography simply said that when not writing, he raised horses, and I realized that I have no equivalent of that. <laughs> 
I have simply been all writer all the time. And for so long, it's almost seemed as if I was living my everyday life in order to write. What might happen, I now wonder, if poetry and writing weren't the point of my life, but were instead a boon, a sudden bouquet that sometimes burst from it. And then I remember the words of an old scholar, this is uh, Joseph Campbell, looking back on a moment in his younger days when he too realized that he had let various pursuits get out of hand to the detriment simply of living his life. And this is Joseph Campbell remembering, uh, so he was born in 1904, remembering being in France, I believe in the mid-twenties, uh, on, a, on a scholarship to study uh, uh, languages. And he says, and this is him remembering it uh, before he died around the age of 80 or so. He says, my decision to follow this course, which, which, uh, which he meant by, uh, um, this, is what, this is what allowed him to decide not to uh, pursue a PhD in what he was studying and to quit academia, basically. My decision to follow this course came one day in Paris while I was sitting in a little garden of Cluny, where the Boulevard Saint-Michel and Saint-Germain come together. And it suddenly struck me. What in heaven's name am I doing? I don't even know how to eat a decent, nourishing meal. And here I am, learning what happened to vulgar Latin when it passed into Portuguese and Spanish and French. An old and powerful thought that I used to have to explain whatever difficulties or travails I perceived in my life was that I was simply born in the wrong century, the wrong country, the wrong generation. Alongside this, I also thought that because our technology is changing so quickly, what appears in the present moment to be stunning and constantly innovative may well appear centuries from now to just be another dark ages, another liminal time of great change and general confusion. Now, if you put both of these ideas together, you have the perfect garden in which the isolated and the estranged artist might grow. And so I am reminded of a passage from Hermann Hesse's novel, Steppenwolf, that he puts into the mouth of his protagonist, Harry Holler. And he says, human life is reduced to real suffering, to hell, only when two ages, two cultures and religions overlap. A man of the classical age who had to live in medieval times would suffocate miserably just as a savage does in the midst of our civilization. Now there are times when a whole generation is caught in this way between two ages, two modes of life, with the consequence that it loses all power to understand itself and has no standard, no security, no simple acquiescence. A nature such as Nietzsche's had to suffer our present ills more than a generation in advance. What he had to go through alone and misunderstood is what thousands suffer today. And back to me saying, certainly when I first read this as an 18-year-old, I identified with the solitary and misunderstood sufferings attributed to Nietzsche. I identified with the person who was born in the wrong age and in the wrong century and who was just 
misunderstood, and there was nothing to do about that but mourn. But now, now, now I identify with the thousands, the entire present generation, the millions, the billions, uh, living under the same malaise. That is, the malaise of feeling alone in a crowd, of feeling separate from the closest people, of feeling defensively different from so many, and seeking some kind of fame or success or attention for whatever reason, a fame and attention that will, for whatever reason, probably never come. Terrified of life as I was as a younger man, I ran from this fear into the arms of art, and despite myself I saw a great distance between myself and others. Yet since then, certain thoughts and ways of thinking, like flashes of light, have come and gone, have been grasped and then remembered and hopefully articulated here, grasped and remembered and hopefully articulated now, seven or eight years later, forgotten and grasped, forgotten and remembered, and grasped and articulated again. Thoughts of fame or reputation or success, or what might be proper or embarrassing, and whole swirling seas of resentment, or the jealousy that I've shared here, or self-consciousness, buried, all of this buried the simple impulse of creativity, the impulse of empathy, the impulse of simply writing out of simple love, of simply living. And so I came to this end, and the best articulation for it came from T.S. Eliot, and uh, I pray that I learn this lesson now for good and do not forget it. And this is what uh, T.S. Eliot says in his Four Quartets. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom we cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again. And now, under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. For us, I will repeat it, for us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.